Tonight, I'm going to be talking about a sensitive topic, abortion. Human life is a sacred gift from God. Elective abortion for personal or social conviction is conduct to the will and the communication of God. Church members who submit to perform and encourage pay for or average for such abortion may lose lose the membership in the church. In today's society, abortion has become a common price different by different agreements. Latter-day Saint Prophet have determined abortion referred into the Lord declaring thou shalt not kill. Kill do not anything like unto it. Dr. Covenants fifty nine six says Thou shalt Thou shalt love thy neighbors as thyself. Thou shalt not steal, neither commit adultery, nor kill, nor do anything like unto it. The concern no no on the matter is clearly members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints must not submit to perform encourage pay for agree Agree for an abortion. Church members who encourage an abortion in any way may be subject to church discipline. Church leaders have said that same experience claimed society made joyfully an abortion, such as when pregnancy is the result of incest or rape, when the life or health of the mother is judged by complete medical authority to be in serious jeopardy, or when the fetus is known by compassion medical authority to have served difference, that will not allow the baby to survive beyond birth. But even the consent suicide status do unmanageably an abortion. Those who face such commitment should not consider an abortion only after considering what the local church leaders have received a confirm through an earnest prayer. When a child is convinced of the real life of the best option is for the mother and the father and the child to marry, to marry and work towards incumbent internal family relationship. If Christopher marriage are unlikely, they should place the child for an adoption. Joshua 1 5 says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou considered father unto the womb, since friend thee, I ordered thee the prophet unto the nation. Dr. Covenants 1810 says, Remember the worth of the soul, and great is the sight of God. Then Don Covenants fifty nine six it says I already read that. Mosiah one thirty nine it says, For behold, this is my work in my glory to bring the past, the immortality into the life of man. This is the topical guide. Oh, um, there's a video. An abortion is an assault 
on the d defense by President Wilson and Nelson. This is audio. Abortion and Assault on the Defenseless by Elder Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Life is precious. No one can cuddle an innocent infant, look into those beautiful eyes, feel the little fingers, and kiss that baby's cheek without a deepening reverence for life and for our Creator. As I begin, let me apologize to readers for the use of terms that are not pleasant. The nature of the war to which I'm referring requires such clarity of communication. As sons and daughters of God, we cherish life as a gift from Him. His eternal plan provides opportunities for His children to obtain physical bodies, to gain earthly experiences, and to realize their divine destinies as heirs of eternal life. Death Rates from Wars With that understanding and reverence for life, we deplore the loss of life associated with warfare. The data are appalling. In World War I, more than 8 million military fatalities occurred. In World War II, more than 22 million servicemen and women died. Together, these two wars, covering portions of 14 years, cost the lives of at least 30 million soldiers worldwide. That figure does not include the millions of civilian casualties. These data, however, are dwarfed by the toll of another war that claims more casualties annually than did World War I and World War II combined. Worldwide reports indicate that more than 40 million abortions are performed per year. This war called abortion is a war on the defenseless and voiceless. It is a war on the unborn. This war is being waged globally. Ironically, civilized societies that have generally placed safeguards on human life have now passed laws that sanction this practice. Divine Doctrine this matters greatly to us because the Lord has repeatedly declared this divine imperative. Thou shalt not kill. Then he added, nor do anything like unto it. Even before the fullness of the gospel was restored, enlightened individuals understood the sanctity of human life. John Calvin, a 16th century reformer, wrote, if it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. Man-made rules have now legalized that which has been forbidden by God from the dawn of time. Human reasoning has twisted and transformed absolute truth into soundbite slogans that promote a practice that is consummately wrong. Special Concerns Concern for the health of the mother is a vital one, but circumstances in which the termination of pregnancy is necessary to save the life of the mother are very rare, particularly when modern medical care is available. Another concern applies to pregnancies resulting from rape or incest. 
This tragedy is compounded because an innocent woman's freedom of choice was denied. In these circumstances, abortion is sometimes considered advisable to preserve the physical and mental health of the mother. Abortions for these reasons are also rare. Some argue for abortion because of fear that a child may have a congenital malformation. Surely the harmful effects of certain infectious or toxic agents in the first trimester of pregnancy are real. But caution is needed in considering the termination of a pregnancy. Life has great value for all, including those born with disabilities. Furthermore, the outcome may not be as serious as postulated. I remember well a couple who endured such an experience. The woman was only 21 years old at the time, a beautiful and devoted wife. In her first trimester, she contracted German measles. Abortion was advised because the developing baby would almost surely be damaged. Some members of her family, out of loving concern, applied additional pressure for an abortion. Devotedly, the couple consulted their bishop. He referred them to their stake president, who, after listening to their concern, counseled them not to terminate the life of this baby, even though the child would likely have a problem. He quoted this scripture, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. They chose to follow that counsel and allowed their child to be born a beautiful little girl, normal in every respect, except for total hearing loss. After their daughter's evaluation at a school for the deaf, their parents were advised that this child had the intellect of a genius. She attended a major university on scholarship. Now, some 40 years later, she enjoys a wonderful life. To deny life to an individual because of a possible handicap is a very serious matter. Policy consistent with that logic would indicate that those already living with such deficiencies should likewise be terminated. One more step in that tragic train of thought would lead to the conclusion that those who are either infirm or inconvenient should also be eliminated. Such a reverence for life would be totally unthinkable. Abortion on Demand Relatively few abortions are performed for the special circumstances to which I have referred. Most abortions are performed on demand to deal with unwanted pregnancies. These abortions are simply a form of birth control. Elective abortion has been legalized in many countries on the premise that a woman is free to choose what she does with her own body. To an extent, this is true for each of us, male or female. We are free to think, we are free to plan, and we are free to do. But once an action has been taken, we are never free from its consequences. To understand this concept more clearly, we can learn from the astronaut. Anytime during selection or preparation, he or she is free to withdraw from the program. But once the spacecraft has lifted off... The astronaut is bound to the consequences of the previous choice to make the journey. So it is with people who choose to embark on a journey that leads to parenthood. They have freedom of choice to begin or not to begin that course. When conception does occur, 
That choice has already been made. Yes, a woman is free to choose what she will do with her body. Whether her choice leads to an astronaut's mission or to a baby, her choice to begin the journey binds her to the consequences of that choice. She cannot unchoose. When the controversies about abortion are debated, individual right of choice is invoked as though it were the one supreme virtue. That could only be true if but one person were involved. The rights of any one individual do not allow the rights of another individual to be abused. In or out of marriage, abortion is not solely an individual matter. Terminating the life of a developing baby involves two individuals with separate bodies, brains, and hearts. A woman's choice for her own body does not include the right to deprive her baby of life and a lifetime of choices that her child would make. As Latter-day Saints, we should stand up for choice, the right choice, not simply for choice as a method. Nearly all legislation pertaining to abortion considers the duration of gestation. The human mind has presumed to determine when meaningful life begins. In the course of my studies as a medical doctor, I learned that a new life begins when two special cells unite to become one cell, bringing together 23 chromosomes from the father and 23 from the mother. These chromosomes contain thousands of genes. In a marvelous process involving a combination of genetic coding by which all the basic human characteristics of the unborn person are established, a new DNA complex is formed. A continuum of growth results in a new human being. Approximately 22 days after the two cells have united, a little heart begins to beat. At 26 days, the circulation of blood begins. To legislate when a developing life is considered meaningful is presumptive and quite arbitrary, in my opinion. Abortion has been legalized by governing entities without regard for God and His commandments. Scriptures state repeatedly that people will prosper only if they obey the commandments of God. Individuals will prosper only when they walk in faith and obedience to God, who said, I, the Lord, built the earth, my very handiwork, and all things therein are mine. And it is my purpose to provide, but it must needs be done in mine own way. For the earth is full, and there is enough and to spare. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has consistently opposed the practice of abortion. More than a century ago, the First Presidency wrote, We again take this opportunity of warning the Latter-day Saints against those practices of feticide and infanticide. Early in his presidency, President Spencer W. Kimball said, we have repeatedly affirmed the position of the church in unalterably opposing all abortions, except in two rare instances, when conception is the result of forcible rape and when competent medical counsel indicates that a mother's health would otherwise be seriously jeopardized. Current policy now includes two other exceptions, incest and if the baby cannot survive beyond birth as determined by competent medical counsel. Even these exceptions do not justify abortion automatically. 
it should be considered only after the persons responsible have consulted with their bishops and received divine confirmation through prayer. Adoption Why destroy a life that could bring great joy to others? There are better ways of dealing with an unwanted pregnancy. When a life is created by sinful behavior, the best way to begin personal repentance is to preserve the life of that child. To add another serious sin to a serious sin already committed only compounds the grief. Adoption is a wonderful alternative to abortion. Both the baby and the adoptive parents can be greatly blessed by the adoption of that baby into a home where the child will be lovingly nurtured and where the blessings of the gospel will be available. Repentance is possible. Is there any hope for the person who has participated in the act of abortion? Is there any hope for those who have so sinned and who now suffer heartbreak? The answer is yes. As far as has been revealed, a person may repent and be forgiven for the sin of abortion. We know the Lord will help all who are truly repentant. Life is precious. No one can cuddle an innocent infant, look into those beautiful eyes, feel the little fingers, and kiss that baby's cheek without a deepening reverence for life and for our Creator. Life comes from life. It is no accident. It is a gift from God. Innocent life is not sent by Him to be destroyed. It is given by Him and is naturally to be taken by Him alone. I testify that life is eternal as He is eternal. Sidebar Adoption A loving decision that blesses the child. We express our support of unwed parents who place their children for adoption in stable homes with a mother and a father. We also express our support of the married mothers and fathers who adopt these children. Children are entitled to the blessing of being reared in a stable family environment where father and mother honor marital vows. Having a secure, nurturing, and consistent relationship with both a father and a mother is essential to a child's well-being. When choosing adoption, unwed parents grant their children this most important blessing. Adoption is an unselfish, loving decision that blesses the child, birth parents, and adoptive parents in this life and throughout the eternities. We commend all those who strengthen children and families by promoting adoption. First Presidency Statement, October 4, 2006. End of sidebar. End of the article, Abortion, an Assault on the Defense. By President Mustn Dalut and Mustn Nelson, this Mustn called Receiving for Life. By President Mustn Nelson. Unitedly, we thank the Almighty for the wondrous prolongation of the life of Elder Bruce R. McConkie enabling him to preach that powerful sermon. 
our gratitude is profound. I pray for the Spirit of the Lord to help me communicate His mind and will on a very vital and sensitive subject. I apologize for the use of words repugnant to me and ill-suited to this hallowed pulpit. I do so only for clarity of communication regarding reverence for human life. As sons and daughters of God, we cherish life as a gift from Him. A heavy toll on life is included among the evils of war. Data from all nations are appalling. The United States of America in its first 200 years as a nation recorded over a million lives lost due to war. Yet these figures are dwarfed by the toll of a new war that claims more casualties than that every year. It is a war on the defenseless, on the voiceless. It is a war on the unborn. This war labeled abortion is of epidemic proportion and is waged globally. Over 55 million abortions were reported worldwide in the year 1974 alone. 64% of the world's population now live in countries that legally sanction this practice. In the United States of America, over one and a half million abortions are performed annually. About 30% of all pregnancies now end in abortion. In some metropolitan areas, there are more abortions performed than live births. Comparable data also come from other nations. Yet society professes reverence for human life. We weep for those who die, pray and work for those whose lives are in jeopardy. For years, I have labored with other doctors here and abroad, struggling to prolong life. It is impossible to describe the grief a physician feels when the life of a patient is lost. Can anyone imagine how we feel when life is destroyed at its roots, as though it were a thing of naught? What sense of inconsistency can allow people to grieve for their dead, yet be callous to this baleful war being waged on life at the time of its silent development? What logic would encourage efforts to preserve the life of a critically ill 12-week-old infant but countenance the termination of another life 12 weeks after inception? More attention is seemingly focused on the fate of a life at some penitentiary's death row than on the millions totally deprived of life's opportunity through such odious carnage before birth. The Lord has repeatedly declared this divine imperative, Thou shalt not kill. Recently he added, Nor do anything like unto it. Even before the fullness of the gospel was restored, the enlightened understood the sanctity of life. John Calvin, a 16th century reformer, wrote, If it seems more disgraceful that a man be killed in his own home than in his field, since for every man his home is his sanctuary, how much more abominable is it to kill a fetus who has not yet been brought into the light? But what impropriety could now legalize that which has been forbidden by the laws of God from the dawn of time? What twisted reasoning has transformed mythical concepts into contorted slogans ascending to a practice which is consummately wrong? These slogans begin with proper concern for the health of the mother. 
Infrequently, instances may occur in which continuation of pregnancy could be life-threatening to the mother. When deemed by competent medical authorities that the life of one must be terminated in order to save the life of the other, many agree it's better to spare the mother. But these circumstances are rare, particularly where modern medical care is available. Another sympathetic concern applies to pregnancies resulting from rape or incest. The tragedy of this despoilment is compounded because in such relationships, freedom of choice is denied the woman who is innocently involved. But less than 3% of all abortions are performed for these two reasons. The other 97% are for what may be termed reasons of convenience. Some argue for abortion because a malformed child may result. The harmful effects of certain infectious or toxic agents in the first trimester of pregnancy are real. The experience of a couple whom I shall identify as brother and sister Brown is instructive. Sister Brown was only 21 years old at the time, a beautiful woman, a devoted wife. In her first trimester, she contracted the dreaded German measles. Abortion was advised because the developing baby would almost surely be damaged. Some members of her family, out of loving concern, applied additional pressure for abortion. Don't burden yourself financially with a handicapped child. You're too young and too poor. Devotedly, they consulted their bishop, and he referred them to their stake president, who listened to their serious concern, counseled them not to terminate the life of this baby, even though the child might have a problem. He quoted this scripture. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. He shall direct thy paths. They chose to follow that counsel and permit their child to be born, a beautiful little girl, normal in every respect except for a hearing loss that became evident later. After an evaluation at the school for the deaf, brother and sister Brown were advised that this child had the intellect of a genius. Now some 20 years later, she attends a major university on a scholarship. When recently asked how they felt about their once weighty decision, the mother quickly responded, Oh, she's one of the great joys of my life. She is such a choice spirit. Though she lost the sense of hearing, she is compensated with augmented ability otherwise. Her eyes are alive with constant attention. She excels in dancing, even though she perceives the sounds of music from vibrations. She served as an officer in school. But most significant is her guileless spirit, her unconditional love. She has taught us to share and to serve. Her spiritual insights have helped us to know God and his purposes. My husband and I are so grateful that she is one of our children. End of quotation. Consider another individual weighing the consequences of her pregnancy. She was beyond the normal age for bearing children. She announced to her doctor that her husband was an alcoholic with a syphilitic infection. One of her children had been born dead. Another was blind. Another had tuberculosis. Her family had a history of deafness. Finally, she confessed that she was living in abject poverty. If this true historical situation were posed today, many would recommend abortion. The child born from that pregnancy became the renowned composer Ludwig von Beethoven.
But the principle involved extends beyond those who become great. If one is to be deprived of life because of potential for developing physical problems, consistency would dictate that those who already have such deficiencies should be terminated. Continuing, those who are either infirm, incompetent, or inconvenient should be eliminated by those in power. Such irreverence for life is unthinkable. Another contention raised is that a woman is free to choose what she does with her own body. To a certain extent, this is true for each of us. We are free to think, and we are free to plan, we're free to do. But once an action has been taken, we're never free from its consequences. Those considering abortion have already exercised certain choices. To clarify this concept, we can learn from the astronaut. Any time during the selection process, planning and preparation, he's free to withdraw. But once the powerful rocket fuel is, is ignited, he's no longer free to choose. Now he's bound by the consequences of his choice. Even if difficulties develop and he might wish otherwise, the choice made was sealed by action. So it is with those who would tamper with the God-given power of procreation. They are free to think and plan otherwise, but their choice is sealed by action. The woman's choice for her own body does not validate choice for the body of another. The expression, terminate the pregnancy, applies literally only to the woman. The consequence of terminating the fetus therein involves the body and very life of another. These two individuals have separate brains, separate hearts, separate circulatory systems. To pretend that there is no child and no life there is to deny reality. It's not a question of when meaningful life begins or when the spirit quickens the body. In biological sciences, it is known that life begins when two germ cells unite to form one cell bringing together 23 chromosomes from both the father and from the mother. These chromosomes contain thousands of genes. In a marvelous process involving a combination of genetic coding by which all the basic human characteristics of the unborn person are established, a new DNA complex is formed. A continuum of growth results in a new human being. The onset of life is not a debatable issue, but a fact of science. Approximately 22 days after the two cells have united, a little heart begins to beat. At 26 days, the circulation of blood begins. Scripture declares that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Abortion sheds that innocent blood. Another slogan relates to population control. Many in developing nations unknowingly ascribe their lack of prosperity to overpopulation. While they grovel in ignorance of God and his commandments, they may worship objects of their own creation or nothing at all. While unsuccessfully attempting to limit their population by the rampant practice of abortion, they live in squalor, oblivious to the divine teaching stated in the scriptures not once but 34 times that people will prosper in the land only if they obey the commandments of God. 
How can God fulfill his promise to prosper his children in obedience if they worship idols or destroy life created by him, destined to be in his very image? They will prosper only when, when their education includes faith in and obedience to the God of this world who said, I, the Lord, built the earth, my very handiwork at all things therein are mine, and it is my purpose to provide. But it must needs be done in my own way, for the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. Now as a servant of the Lord, I dutifully warn those who advocate and practice abortion that they incur the wrath of Almighty God who declared, If man hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, he shall be surely punished. Of those who shed innocent blood, a prophet declared, the judgments which God shall exercise in his wrath shall be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has consistently opposed the practice of abortion. One hundred years ago, the First Presidency wrote, And we again take this opportunity of warning the Latter-day Saints against those practices of feticide and infanticide. Early in his presidency, our beloved President Spencer W. Kimball said, we decry abortions and ask our people to refrain from this serious transgression. Why destroy a life that could bring such joy to others? Now, is there hope for those who have so sinned without full understanding, who now suffer heartbreak? Yes. So far as is known, the Lord does not regard this transgression as murder. And as far as has been revealed, a person may repent and be forgiven for the sin of abortion. Gratefully, we know the Lord will help all who are truly repentant. Yes. Life is precious. No one can cuddle a cherished newborn baby. Look into those beautiful eyes. Feel the little fingers and caress that miraculous creation without deepening reverence for life and for our Creator. Life comes from life. It is a gift from our Heavenly Father. It is eternal as He is eternal. Innocent life is not sent by him to be destroyed. This doctrine is not of me, but of the living God and of his divine Son, which I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I promise you that if you know someone or if you got an abortion, you will be repent. You will get forgiven. Please don't get abortion. Please, please. That's a child of God. Um, it, it's part of life. Um, it comes from a special thing. And two parents get together. It's a sacred thing. Very sacred. Very, very, very sacred. I promise you that if you do get an abortion, 
you will get you've get forgiven. I know sometimes you don't feel like you'd be forgiven, but you will. This is by Prison Board Parker. A, a little child shall lead them. Years ago, on a cold night on the train, in a train station in Japan, I heard a tap on my the window of my sleeper car. There stood a freezing boy wearing a ragged shirt with a dirty rag tied about the swollen jaw. His head was covered with scabies. He held a rusty tin can and a spoon, the symbol of an orphan beggar. As I struggled to open the door to give him money, the train pulled out. I will never forget that starving little boy left standing in a cold, holding up an empty tin can. Nor can I forget how helpless I felt as the train pulled slowly away and left him standing on the platform. Some years later in Cusco, a city high in the Andes, Peru, A. Theodore Tuttle and I held a sacrament meeting in a long, narrow room that opened onto the street. It was a cold night, and uh, while Elder Tuttle spoke, a tiny little boy, perhaps six years old, appeared in the doorway. He wore only a ragged shirt that went about to his knees. On her left was a small table with a plate of bread for the sacrament. This starving street orphan saw the bread and ate slowly along the wall toward it. He was almost to the table when a woman on the aisle saw him. With a stern toss of her head, she banished him out into the night. I groaned within myself. Later, the little boy returned. He slid along the wall, glancing from the bread to me. And when he was near the point where the woman would see him again, I held out my arms. He came running to me. I held him on my lap. Then there's something symbolic. I set him on Elder Tuttle's chair. After the closing prayer, the hungry little boy darted out into the night. When I returned home, I told President Spencer W. Kimball about my experience. He was deeply moved and told me you were holding a nation on your lap. He said to me more than once, that experience has far greater meaning than you have yet come to know. As I have visited Latin American countries nearly a hundred times, I've looked for that little boy in the faces of the people. Now I do know what President Kimball meant. I met another shivering boy on the streets of Salt Lake City. It was late on another cold winter night. We were leaving Christmas dinner at a hotel. Down the street came six or eight noisy boys. All of them should have been at home and out of the cold. One boy had no coat. He bounced about, about very rapidly to stave off the chill. He disappeared down the side street, no doubt to a small, shabby apartment and a bed that did not have enough covers to keep him warm. At night, when I pulled the covers over me, I offer a prayer 
for those who have no warm bed to go to. I was stationed in Japan at Osaka when the World War II closed. The city was rubble and the street was littered with blocks and debris and bomb craters. Although most of the trees had been blasted away, some few of them still stood with shattered limbs and trunks and had the courage to send forth a few twigs with leaves. A tiny girl dressed in a ragged colored kimono was busily gathering yellow sycamore leaves into a bouquet. The little child seemed unaware of the devastation that surrounded her as she scrambled over the rubble to add new leaves to her collection. She had found the one beauty left in her world. Perhaps I should say she was the beautiful part of her world. Somehow to think of her increased my faith. Embodied in the child was hope. Mormon taught that little children are alive in Christ and need not repent. Around the turn of the century, two missionaries were laboring in the mountains of southern United States. One day from a hilltop, they saw people gathering in a clearing far below. The missionary did not often have many people to whom they might preach, so they made their way down to the clearing. A little boy had drowned. There was to be a funeral. His parents had sent for the minister to say words over their son. The missionary stood back as the itinerant ministry faced the grieving father and mother and began his sermon. If the parents expected to receive comfort from this man of the cloth, they'd be disappointed. He scolded them severely for not having had that little boy baptized. They put it off because of one thing or another, and now it was too late. He told them very bluntly that the little boy had gone to hell, and it was their fault. They were to blame for his endless torment. After the sermon was over and the grave was covered, the elders approached the grieving parents. We are servants of the Lord, they told the mother, and we have come with a message for you. As the sobbing parents listened, the two elders read from their revelations and bore their testimony of the restoration of the keys of redemption of both the living and the dead. I have some sympathy for that preacher. He was doing the best he could with such light a knowledge as he had. But there's more that he should have been able to offer. There's the fullness of the gospel. The elders came as comforters, as teachers, as servants of the Lord, as authorized ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These children of whom I spoke represent all of our Heavenly Father's children. Children are an heritage of the Lord, and happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. The creation of life is a great responsibility for married couples. It is a challenge of mortality to be a worthy and responsible parent. Neither man nor woman can bear children alone. It was meant that children have two parents, both a father and a mother. No other pattern or process can replace this one. Long ago, a woman tearfully told me that as a college student, 
she'd made a serious mistake with her boyfriend. He had arranged for an abortion. In due time, they graduated and were married and had several other children. She told me how tormented she now was to look at her family, her beautiful children, and see in her mind the place empty now where the one child was missing. If this couple understands and applies the atonement, they will know that those experiences and the pain connected with them can be erased. No pain will last forever. It is not easy, but life was never meant to be either easy or fair. Repentance and the lasting hope that forgiveness brings will always be worth the effort. Another young couple tearfully told me that they had just come from a doctor where they were told that they would be unable to have children of their own. They were brokenhearted with the news. They were surprised when I told them that they were actually quite fortunate. They wondered why would I say such a thing. I told them their state was infinitely better than other couples who were capable of being parents but who rejected and selfishly avoided that responsibility. Still others remain unmarried and therefore childless. Some due to circumstances beyond their control are raising children as single mothers and single fathers. These are temporary states in the eternal scheme of things, not always in mortality. Righteous yearning and longing will be fulfilled. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The ultimate end of all activity in the church is to see a husband and his wife and their children happy at home, protected by the principles and laws of the gospel, sealed safely in the covenants of the everlasting priesthood. Husbands and wives should understand that their first calling from which they will never be released is to one another and then to their children. One of the great discoveries of parenthood is that we learn far more about what really matters from our children than ever we did from our parents. We come to recognize the truth in Isaiah's prophecy that a little child shall lead them. In Jerusalem, Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except you are converted and become as the little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever there shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, Suffer the little children and forbid them not to come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hand on them and departed thence. We read in the Book of Mormon of a visit of Jesus Christ to the new world. He healed and blessed and commanded that their little children should be brought to him. Nephi records. They brought their little children and set them down upon the ground round about him. And Jesus stood in their midst, and the multitude gave way till they had all been brought into him. 
He then commanded the people to kneel. With the children around him, the Savior knelt and offered a prayer unto our Father in heaven. After the prayer, the Savior wept, and he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. I can understand the feelings expressed by the Savior toward children. There is much to be learned from following his example in seeking to pray or bless and teach these little ones. I was number 10 in a family of 11 children. So far as I know, neither my mother nor my father served in a prominent calling in the church. Our parents served faithfully in their most important calling as parents. Our father led our home in righteousness, never with anger or fear. And the powerful example of our father is magnified by the tender counsel of our mother. The gospel is a powerful influence in the life of everyone, of us in the Packer family, and to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next, as far as we have seen. I hope to be judged as good a man as my father before I hear those words, well done from my heavenly father. I hope first to hear them from my mortal father. Many times I have puzzled over why I should be called an apostle and as president of the Quorum of the Twelve, in spite of having come from a home where that father could be termed as less active. I'm not the only member of the Twelve who fits that description. Finally, I could see and understand that it may have been because of that circumstance that I was called, and I could understand why. In all that we do in the church, we need to provide the way as leaders for parents and children to have time together as families. Priests and leaders must be careful to make the church family friendly. There are many things about living the gospel of Jesus Christ that cannot be measured by that which is counted or charted in regular attendance. We busy ourselves with buildings and budgets and programs and procedures. In doing so, it is possible to overlook the very spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Too often, someone comes to me and says, President Packer, would it be, wouldn't it be nice if? I usually stop them and say no, because I suspect that what follows will be a new activity or program that is going to add a burden of time and financial means on the family. Family time is sacred time and should be protected and respected. We urge our members to show devotion to their families. When we were first married, my wife and I decided that we'd accept the children that would be born to us with the responsibility of attending their birth and growth. In due time, they have formed families of their own. Twice in our marriage, at the time of birth of one of our little boys, we've had a doctor say, I don't think you're going to keep this one. Both times, this brought a response from us that we would give our lives if our tiny son would keep his. In the course of that offer, it dawned on us 
that the same devotion is akin to what Heavenly Father feels about each of us. What a supernal thought. Now in the sunset of our lives, Sister Packer and I understand and have the willingness and the witness that our families can be forever. As we obey the commandments and live the gospel fully, we will be protected and blessed with our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Our prayer is that each one of our growing family will have that same devotion toward those precious little ones. Fathers and mothers, next time you cradle a newborn child in your arms, you can have an inner vision of the mysteries and purpose of life. You'll better understand why the church is as it is and why the family is the basic organization in time and in eternity. I bear witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and the plan of redemption which has been called the plan of happiness is a plan for families. And pray the Lord that the families of the church will be blessed, parents and children, that this work can roll forth as a father intends and bear that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God and the little children shall lead them. I promise you that if you don't have a abortion, you'll be blessed. My kid blesses me every single day. Um, she's she's almost three years old, and she blesses me every single day. I'm grateful for her. I'm grateful for all that we can do and see how children can be raised and raised in this generation. Hope you enjoy this podcast. And I hope we see you next time. Thank you. Love you. Bye-bye.